0: He knows his stuff, and sure enough, it's shooting the bowl with Tom Snow All righty, so good evening, morning, afternoon, folks. Welcome to the third and final ep- part of our Scottish War of Independence. I'm your host, Tom Snow, and with me is my brother, Bob Snow. Bob, say hi. Thank you, Mr. Snow. It's good to be back once again. Excellent. Lovely to hear your voice. Uh, I hope your day's been going well and your week's been going well. It's been a while since we've uh, done one of these. Yeah, it has been a little while. Sorry I've been uh, so busy. Uh, I've, been, I've had my notes ready to go and ready to talk about this for uh, actually probably since we finished up part two. But, you know, life gets in the way. It does. Um, you know, we've, we've kept the audience in quite the suspense. That's so, right. looking at the notes, I think we left off, it's the summer of 1314, and if Robert, if I'm not mistaken, Robert the Bruce's brother, Edward Bruce, made a deal with the English commander of Stirling Castle, saying he will give up control of the castle if an English army does not relieve the castle on Midsummer's day of that year, is that correct? that's correct june 24th is the uh, is the deadline for the english to come and rescue the castle i was just about to ask what is midsummer's day but you've answered for me Actually, you mind, man hope... isn't that like the first week of summer now you know what? i believe I, I i couldn't tell you i don't know when midsummer's day was this year yeah i always, i know people always say it's memorial day but is the first day of summer. I always thought it was like June 15th or something like that. I think officially it's always the 21st. Sounds about right. Um, or around the 21st, because it's on the 24th and 1314. So f- Robert the Bruce does not like the news he gets from his little brother, correct? No, he's, he's, uh, he's not in a good mood to hear that, because... It's essentially a challenge to Edward II or, or Eddie, as we've been uh, as we've been affectionately calling him, uh, to distinguish him from his much tougher father. Uh, it, it is essentially a challenge for him to come and uh, bring a big army to Scotland and uh, relieve the siege. Now we've uh, we you kind of already answered this, but I was going to ask: Edward II is is he a good king a good general i know he said he's not as good as edward but is he like adequate or just terrible well we're only a you know, a, a couple of years into his reign at this point um but he's uh you know historically not painted in a, a good light um partially because he, he just wasn't the man his father was uh but he he did pick favorites and it, he did alienate some of his supporters uh he you know, we don't want to give any spoilers away, uh, but you know, he's, he, he doesn't have a lot of success in his reign. And so he gets just kind of painted in a horrible light. Uh, his wife leaves him, gets kicked off the throne. Uh, it's just not a, good, not a good reign or a good time in English history. So I was going to ask, so Edward II, does he accept this challenge? <laughs> he sure does. And he's kind of aware that he has some big shoes to fill, so he uh, assembles the largest English force to ever invade Scotland. It's about fifteen thousand men, including two thousand uh, heavy cavalry. Uh, it is—it's uh, just a, its a, its the hammer of England. We talked about the, the smaller forces that it had invaded uh, in previous campaigns at Stirling uh, and Falkirk. Uh, this is this guy means business. And it's important, I know we've mentioned this in previous episodes, but I'm going to mention it again anyway because I think it's very important. Yeah. Armies back then were not hundreds of thousands of men. They were not two, 200,000 men like we've seen in the Civil War, World War II. It was more like 10,000 men was a big army. Absolutely. And this guy's bringing 15,000. Absolutely. Yeah, just uh, you know, a little review. Like you said, uh, you know, armies at this time – if they were, you know, five, you know, ten thousand men, that's a sizable army. You know, the the composition of these forces was, uh, you know, heavily reliant on guys who would normally be farming. Uh, usually, the knights, were, you know, in their shining armor, were nobles, and they tended to constitute a much smaller portion of the army. And so, you had to call off guys from their normal farming gigs to uh, to fill the ranks. And so, it was devastatingly expensive to maintain a large army and was one of the reasons that armies are so small is because populations were just so small back then Eh, partially you know populations were definitely smaller back then uh so you know the the percentage wise or ratio of army to to population it would have wouldn't have been quite as drastic as a 2,000 man army in, in today's United States uh but you know, they a part of it was that they had to um, you know, they did have to dip into uh the the farmland or into their uh their farming population. Uh it took a long time to muster large groups of men. So they had to pick, you know, mustering grounds close to the border or close to a port. Uh mercenaries were expensive. Uh it, it just was basically impossible to, to muster an army of, you know, more than you know, 25,000 men for most countries I, I you think call them countries it's kingdoms I think most of our listeners are smart enough to know this as well but remember 1300 we don't have trucks we don't have tanks we don't have railroads we definitely don't have airplanes so the logistics behind with what using what they had then they, it was like you said impossible to just feed a 100,000 men army oh yeah and it it we have to kind of be a little bit careful there because it, it wasn't unheard of at that point to amass an enormous army the romans could couldn't amass an enormous sure. army but between you know the standing armies of the roman legions and the feudal levies of, of medieval europe a lot of time had passed of course and uh and that structure of a standing legionary based army uh had collapsed entirely you know they the romans could do it because of their uh the military tradition their ability to turn soldiers into forgers and road builders uh but these you know medieval levies they just they just couldn't do it sure and that's a good point um going back to the story we kind of digressed a little bit but i thought it was a good way to segue yeah. robert the bruce is up against a fifteen thousand men army and what does he have under his command Are you that's sounds like a much smaller army that's right uh, as a little review for the last episode uh, he had a, a you know the biggest force that he had ever commanded up to this point but it's it's about half the size of the English army it's between six and seven thousand men uh, mostly infantry uh, you know almost I should say almost entirely infantry uh, foot soldiers um, and I believe about three thousand of those men weren't even you know, your your freemen. Soldiers, you know, who had some basic military equipment, uh, armor, weapons. Uh, th- it said that he had about three thousand small folk, which were your enthusiastic peasants, armed with whatever they could get. Uh, it would just kind of flock to his banner to to bolster the ranks and fight for uh, fight for a cause that that they believed in. So it sounds like we have the uh, Cleveland Browns versus the New England Patriots of the fourteenth century. That's exactly what you're looking at. Uh, in addition to his, uh, his, his, his um, six to 7,000 foot soldiers, he has about a 500 light cavalry. Uh, it's not clear whether these are the, uh, you know, a traditional Celtic skirmishing cavalry force, uh, basically unarmored and carrying throwing spears and a small sword and shield, or if they're proper knights, but just much light more lightly equipped than the English. So it's not, it's definitely not a bad army. It's probably for the time it's fairly respectable. It's just not what Edward II has. Yeah, he's, he's going up against the most powerful army in, in Europe, or at least in the British Isles, uh, with a respectable force. But, uh, you know, it, without the, the tradition, you know, the, the, the famous guile and cunning of Robert the Bruce, if you put John Balliol uh, in charge of this army. It, it, Wouldn't seem very impressive. What's he doing, John Belio? Is he still in the picture? Is he basically done? He is in, uh, I believe he's in custody in his, uh, uh, actually kind of living rather comfortably, but still sort of uh, exiled uh, in his uh, family estates in France. Could be worse. Could be worse. He's not in the Tower. He shouldn't be in the Tower of London at this point. I'm pretty sure he's, that only lasted a couple of years, and I, I, I'm pretty sure he's under house arrest at, at the worst at this point. So, imagining if I'm in Robert the Bruce's situation, if I'm going up against a much stronger force, I'm probably going to take time and really have to prepare. It's like, again, going back to the football analogy, if I'm the coach of the Cleveland Browns going up against the mighty, all-time great New England Patriots, I need to like do my homework and... Come up with something good, and that's right. And that's exactly what—that's uh, a blessing that uh, Robert the Bruce has, because Bill Belichick, or in this case uh, Eddie, uh, he takes a long time to get this large army from uh, England to Scotland. We had talked about this quite a bit in the last two uh, parts, but the logistics of of moving a large army you know, overland at this point is a nightmare, uh, and I, I believe it takes. Uh, at least a couple of months uh, for the English to, to finally make it to Scotland. And uh, in that time, Bruce has been training his, uh, his forces, uh, not just to be, you know, to form these shiltrons or, or the, the kind of this, the hedgehog shaped spear formations that we talked about uh, with Stirling Bridge. Uh, at Stirling Bridge, they had basically just been trained to hold the ground and present their spears, Bruce trains his Shiltrons his to be a mobile force. So imagine just these large masses of pikemen and spearmen actually being able to move at speed and on the offensive. Uh, he does a great job of making this into a, an actual offensive force. And, and he also lays some traps for the English on the road to Stirling, uh, caltrops and, and spike pits for the, uh, the English cavalry to fall onto. So, and when Edward II eventually gets to, wh- where is this, I guess it sounds like there's a big battle that's about to happen. It sounds like it's near Sterling. Is there an exact name for this location? This is the, the Battle of Bannockburn, uh, ah. named after a, a stream, the, the Bannockburn, that uh, basically ran through uh, the battlefield uh, and kind of formed a barrier for uh, Robert the Bruce. So we're two big military history geeks. So let's talk about the battle formations and how both commanders are setting up their troops. Mm-hmm. So it looks like the vanguard is under Thomas Randolph for the Scottish. It, That's right. Thomas Randolph was a nephew of Robert the Bruce. Uh, he's, he's been serving with him for a long time. Uh, he's a trusted knight. The vanguard, is that like the advanced part of the line? It's, it's the advanced part of the line. They uh, do some scouting. They're kind of ahead of the main battle, uh, battle line there. They're screening it. The tip of the spear. The tip of the spear and the eyes of the army. Next, he has two divisions under his brother, Edward Bruce, and your favorite character of Outlaw King, James Douglas. Is that correct? The Black Douglas. That's right. I love his character in um, Outlaw King. I thought it was... He's not like com- a comedy guy, but he's definitely has some good lines. He's entertaining to watch. Excellent acting performance. And holding down the rear guard is Robert the Bruce himself. That's right. And he's got his, uh, his small folk uh, in the reserve. Uh, it's, you know, to paint a, a better picture of this position, uh, you know, Bruce is on the, uh, the Northern side of the Bannock burn kind of camped around a, a clump of trees or a small forest. And a lot of his forces either hidden in the forest or kind of wrapped around it. Now looking at the strategic positioning, what is there any like strategy behind that? Well, being in a forest is uh is obviously a good place to, to kind of have a, a fallback position. Uh, if your lines break uh because cavalry actually especially heavy cavalry uh at a difficult time navigating thick clumps of trees and so if you ever see uh you know movies where an an, an army of cavalry is pursuing a, a group of infantry and you know, whenever the infantry go into the woods the cavalry just kind of stops uh, and there's a deleted scene in, uh, in the Lord of the Rings where the Rohirrim don't pursue the, uh, the Urukai uh, into the Fangorn forest, partially because there's a bunch of angry ants in there. But uh, if you look at it from a historical perspective, you don't go charging your cavalry into a forest to get highly disorganized. And it makes sense. I don't know, yeah. Especially yeah. back then, there wasn't any uh, tree cutting services yeah, and Scotland was, uh, was heavily forested back then. It, it, it had suffered a lot of deforestation, you know, when it industrialized, but uh, you know, definitely big, tall clumps of trees in Scotland all over the place. And you know, the flip, the other side is um, the, the, uh, the Bannockburn uh, kind of between him and the oncoming English army uh, and the road that crossed over the bridge uh, kind of on each side of that road is where he lays a lot of his traps. What do you have any idea of what Robert the Bruce was hoping the English would do? Well, he's probably hoping that the, uh, the English would do something stupid like they did at uh, Sterling Bridge and kind of funnel their way right into his uh, into the Scottish spearmen uh, and, and kind of bog themselves down on uh, on the traps that he set. Excellent. So, June twenty third, the day before Midsummer's Eve. The English Army arrives, and you want to talk about how the army 's broken up real quick Sure thing uh, real quick uh, it 's pretty notable that the Battle of Bannockburn is actually a, a two day battle. Most medieval battles at this time were, were short couple of hours tops. Uh, it was generally the, the the main clash of the two armies. Uh, one side got the upper hand, the other one retreated, and the, the winners would cut down the fleeing uh, losers. Uh, Bannockburn lasted two days, so we're on June 23rd. Like you said, the day before the deadline. And Bruce is probably not happy about that because look how quickly, you know, imagine if he didn't have this force with him. He has to give up the the siege of Sterling Castle by this by this agreement between his brother, and Philip Mowbray, the the governor of the castle for England. Uh, So the English uh, soldiers arrive on the 23rd of June. Uh, Their vanguard, the front, uh, is consisted of uh, the heavy cavalry of the the Earls of Gloucester and Hereford. And uh, they see this Scottish army ahead of them. And it's it's not the heavily armored, you know, forces of France that they're used to fighting. Uh, It's, you know, they probably think, oh, it's a bunch of dirty peasants, just like always. Uh, and they charge without orders. They basically want to end the battle now, relieve the castle, and uh, and basically undo all of Robert the Bruce's successes at this point. One English knight in the vanguard, uh, this is a famous story. Uh, his name is Henry de Bowen. Uh, he sees Robert the Bruce kind of riding along the lines of, of Scottish soldiers spearmen and shiltrons uh, and he he decides that he's going to end this once and for all by himself by himself he rides ahead of the advancing uh english vanguard uh loud, his lance is, is couched under his arm he's got his shield up and like we had mentioned before this guy is a tank medieval knights were the tanks of of uh, of the time. Uh they were almost unstoppable on a charge. Uh and so Henry de bowen is running down Robert the Bruce personally. And Robert the Bruce sees this and he's not he, he's the English always had a, an advantage in quality of arms and armor over the Scottish. So even Robert the Bruce, you know, king of Scotland, He's only got a, a hand axe and he's on a small little horse uh, in probably much worse quality armor. It doesn't look like a fair fight for Robert the Bruce, but what he does have is mobility. And at just the right opportune time, uh, Henry de Bowen is charging at him. Robert de Bruce sidesteps his horse and embeds his, his hand axe right in the head of uh, Henry de Bowen. Much to the cheers of his men, uh, and it, it said that he, he, he kind of looked at you know at, at the slumped over body of Henry de Bowen and doesn't make a big deal of it he just goes oh damn it he broke my axe because the, he actually had smashed the it, Henry de Bowen's head had broken Robert de Bruce's favorite axe when it, it when it smashed into it uh, and so you know, Henry de Bowen makes a pretty bad first blow for uh, for England more of the stories don't try to be a hero by yourself. Yeah, because even if he had, had killed Rob the Bruce, he, he probably still would have been at least killed by the Scottish behind him. But he, you know, he's a knight, he's got a, a reputation to uphold, he wants some glory, and uh, he doesn't quite get it. In fact, if you Google or you, if you look up on Wikipedia, Henry de Bowen. The first image that comes up, it might even be the only image uh, besides his coat of arms, is a painting of him getting his head smashed in by Robert the Bruce. Not a way to, I, want, I would like to be remembered if I was an English knight. Exactly. It's, a, it's not a very, very bright legacy. <laughs> so now that uh, Robert the Bruce showed his troops how to fight and killed a, like you said, a heavily armored tank, 14th century tank soldier, by himself, I must give the Scottish troops some encouragement. That sure does. They cheer, they surge forward to meet the English, uh, right as the English decide that uh, it's time to really charge. Uh, Henry de Bowen had ridden ahead of the vanguard, but they had been advancing uh, against the Scottish. Now the English knights charge, uh, they flounder on the, the booby trapped. Fields that you know full of caltrops and spike pits and so the charges is, is kind of you know thinned out it's slowed down they get bogged down on the terrain and then these like i said now mobile shiltrons smash into them tie them down even further uh killing them spearing them you know with their uh, killing their horses knocking them off their horses and stabbing them and taking uh hundreds of captives and it, it the uh day one is just a disaster for the english they try a second time uh to kind of actually go around the scottish force uh with a separate cavalry army to go straight for the castle and you know it it, they could probably make the argument that this is the relief of the castle and uh and thus they have to force the scottish to retreat it's kind of a tricky maneuver but thomas randolph catches them just in time and utterly routs their force. So, day one is you know, round one goes to Scotland and Robert the Bruce. First half, Scott put some big points on the board. Huge points on the board. The English you- vanguard is completely routed. You know, the stragglers go back, either go back to the castle or back to Edward's army to inform them of the defeat. Do you have any idea of the casualties? On day one, uh. Well, casual reports were definitely uh, not as organized and uh, clear back then, but it was pretty heavy. They lost uh, a lot of men and, and quite a few uh, of their uh, of knights. I believe uh, Gloucester, one of the commanders of the uh, of the foray, actually died um, in that charge. It was it was pretty heavy. Now, I'm in- sorry, I take it back. He dies on day uh, you know later. Dies if really If you're rooting for the Earl of Gloucester, he dies. So, if this was a if the English had a normal average army similar to the size of Robert the Bruce's, they're probably that would probably be the end of the battle. But because Edward has this gigantic force, he has the luxury of going a second round. Is that That's right? right. That's right. He's got uh, you know, plenty of forces to bring up. Uh, basically, his infantry component. Uh, much of his cavalry as well, and his archers. Now, if I'm robbed the Bruce, I think the only way I can win this battle is if I can keep the momentum going. Is that correct? That's right. He's got to stay kind of, you know, not quite on the offensive. He's still kind of holding, you know, his ground, but he he needs to be aggressive in his defense. And more importantly, he's got to, kind of channel his inner tom brady and give that locker room speech in the halftime to get the troops going that's right uh yeah the the following day he does you know on june 24th midsummer's day he does give a a little speech before his uh his attack and you know culminates and they do not believe that we can resist and so uh you know with that they, they advance uh against the english who at this point are are pretty demoralized he actually received uh uh, you know a message from uh, a scottish defector who had been serving with edward uh who then switched back to robert the bruce uh that the english army was you know demoralized and tired and they they didn't have a whole lot of uh of, of spirit i just want to go back to that speech real quick um I'm sh- I'm not a big like poetry or music guy, but I know I'm not sure any listeners are out there either. But there's Robert Burns, a famous Scottish poet. Didn't he um turn that speech Robert the Bruce gave into a famous poem? That's right. Uh Scotswa well, Hey. It's uh it's a poem and, and uh later turned to a song by uh by Robert Burns. Uh you know, Spoil not, not really a spoiler alert, but a little FYI to the listeners. The name Robert is incredibly common in Scottish history. Uh, there's more, you know, it, Robert the Bruce kind of made it famous, but there had been, uh, you know, before that, it had been very common. And there's, there's more to come, even in this story. Uh, I but don't Robert know why it's the, such a lousy name. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> uh, but yes, he did. Uh, he did. Uh, composed of a very nice poem, uh, and it's actually uh, put to a uh, the tune. Of, I believe it was actually to the uh, a song that was played on the bagpipes, which were a much more simplified instrument back then. Uh, before the battle, I forget I- the name of the song, but now it's basically just the tune of "Scottsweh." It's been made famous by that uh, by that poem and song. Is "Scottsweh" is that the national anthem Scotland, or is that flower of Scotland? Officially, it's God Save the Queen because uh, it's, you know, Scotland is is married to England to form uh, the bigger part of the United Kingdom. But the unofficial national anthem is uh, Flower of Scotland. Also composed by Robert Burns? No, it's actually a a fairly recent song. It was uh, composed by a couple of folk artists. I forget their name was a duo, Uh, but that's a lovely song. Uh, if you uh, ever hear it on the bagpipes or, you know, even just the singer, a gorgeous little song. I would offer to um, sing Scott's Wahey, but I think our ratings will be plummeting down with my singing voice. So I will try to find um, some kind of lyrics or a music page. And I know I've said I would do this multiple times. I will try to put this on a show notes or something. I know I have not been very good at uh, doing that, but I'll try to... I was looking for your, your show notes in the first I'm couple I'm still learning episodes. how to do that. <laughs> um, but I'll definitely try to do that. So, day two, second half, third quarter. Brother Proust gives a speech, and what, how do the Scottish f- respond? Well, they start their advance uh, kind of into a volley of those famous longbowmen. And we talked about how devastating the longbowmen were against the stationary shiltrons of William Wallace at the Battle of Falkirk. But now they have a moving target to deal with. And they still, you know, are a danger, of course. You know, longbow was, was one of the deadliest weapons in uh, in history <laughs> before machine guns. That's what uh, they say. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they, they were better than all early firearms. You know, they only like I said, in one of the first parts that the only reason the English stopped using them is because they're so hard to, uh, to train somebody to use, uh, especially on mass. Uh, but so the, uh, the English and Welsh archers, you know, loose a, a volley of, of arrows into the, uh, the advancing Scots, but it doesn't slow them down at all. Uh, the, the Scots, you know, like I said, they had the, uh, the burn kind of in front of them and the English are kind of in a, they're kind of trapped, not the, the Bannockburn is more of a stream than a river. It's not like at, at Sterling Bridge, but they don't have nearly as much room to maneuver, and so the English have to bring in their cavalry to uh, at least, you know, hammer into the Scottish infantry. You know, before the longbowmen can really kind of do their damage. Uh, and of course, if as we've been kind of seeing the theme, uh, charging your cavalry headlong into a large mass of spearmen doesn't usually bode well for your cavalry. And so the, 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 the stopped the, uh, the, the English knights once again, and the, uh, the Welsh and English archers kind of have to either shoot into this mass of, uh, of, of uh, fighting men, including hitting their own troops or try to maneuver around them. And so they, they, they actually do that. Uh, but unlike at Falkirk, Robert the Bruce is able to hold on to his small cavalry force, you know, as opposed to William Wallace, who got betrayed by them or abandoned by them. And so, as soon as the uh, the English longbowmen and the Welsh longbowmen are are vulnerable, the the Scottish cavalry come and ride them down. And so the main kind of saving point for the English army, their their knockout blow. Uh, their Gronkowski, uh, their, their Rob Gronkowski is gone. It's wiped away. It's routed, uh, and so the English cavalry are basically just left alone to get skewered by the uh, by the Scottish, and it it quickly becomes uh, evident that the uh, the Scots are are going to win. And it gets even worse for the English when they, that 3,000 strong force of, of small folk comes out of the woods, making it kind of look like a second army has come to, to save the, you know at least not even save the Scottish. They don't need to be saved. but uh, it, Add a little muscle. Add a little muscle. And that's the, the tipping point. The, uh, the English have to retreat. So real quick, I, if let's say... Looking at this medieval warfare as if it's like a rock, paper, scissors, shoot contest. Archers beat pike, uh, spearmen. Spearmen beat knights. Knights beat archers. Is that basically how it works? That's actually a, a pretty good analogy. Yeah, they uh, you know, that's essentially right. If you break down knights into just cavalry in general, as light cavalry you know, are very good for running down archers. Uh, and you know, of course, you've got infantry with swords, but most infantry carried spears at this point. Uh, swords were kind of a sidearm, and uh, and kind of relegated to. And and I should say, you know, swords, axes, war hammers. That uh, they were not quite as not nearly as common as a spear. But so, you got it, you know, nail on the head. That's, you know, you can't charge your cavalry on spearmen. Spearmen can't catch up to archers, uh, and uh, archers can. And mow down uh pikemen, but they get run down by cavalry. I literally just made that up on the spot, so I'm really proud of myself right now. Good stuff, man, so you said this English army was you said they were kind of trapped in some areas. Are the Scottish with this three thousand i guess light small folk militia peasants are they trying to envelop the English army or are they just trying to get them to retreat? The woods is, is kind of behind uh uh The Bruce's army. So they I don't think they actually flanked the the English. There wasn't a whole lot of room to maneuver, like I said. Uh, but there, you know, if if the if we look at you know if we're looking at a, a bird's eye view of the the Scots spearmen coming down from the north and the English cavalry coming in from the south, and they're kind of locked, you know, in a, in a stalemate or even just kind of a melee, a, a bloody melee where where no clear winner is emerging. Suddenly 3,000 fresh troops is the push that Robert the Bruce needs. And he's coming out with, you know, he's leading this charge personally. They're enough to, to really just push the English army towards the Bannockburn, into the stream. So is this an orderly retreat by the English or is this a free-for-all panic? It, it becomes a rout, especially when they see Edward II getting rushed to safety uh, you know, with, with the small force of his knights. Although I was going to ask, so where's, is Edward II, he does not seem like a commander that leads by the front. Is he more of a guy that's kind of towards the rear, telling his guys where to go and all that? Or is he actually kind of in the fighting himself? I didn't see exactly any recollections of him in the, the heat of the battle. Uh, we have to kind of recognize that he's not popular in England or Scotland. So if he was actually, you know, showing the bravery that he, you know, later historians attribute to him, uh it probably wasn't recorded uh by either side. They probably didn't want to paint a very good picture of Edward II. So he might have been at least somewhat active, but you know, his armies, you know, he can't beat the Scottish at this point, so he he is rushed to safety by you know, a, a, I think it's a few you, few hundred of his of his men, uh, he's got a large bodyguard and they go to Sterling Castle. Now you remember that Philip de Mowbray uh, made a deal with Edward Bruce, uh, that if the castle you know, is not relieved by midsummer, he has to surrender. And so Edward II, Eddie, comes up to the gate, says he'll let me in, <laughs> battles over. And Philip Mowbray has to look his king dead in the eye from the walls and say, we're surrendering tomorrow. You can't, you're not safe here. Uh, and sure enough, James, the black Douglas is right behind Edward, the second with, uh, with some forces, uh, trying to capture Edward, the second. So Edward, the second Eddie has to retreat even further back to Berwick where he's finally saved losing his, a uh, rich baggage train, a lot of captives, um, you know, the Earl of Hereford, one of his co-commanders, has captured uh, the Earl of Gloucester. The guy we were talking about a little bit earlier, he's dead. This was the spoiler. He's dead. Uh, and the uh, you know, He's been uh, he's been killed in one of the charges. The, uh, the battle is over. You know, round two, Robert the Bruce. Round one, Robert the Bruce. Round two, Robert the Bruce. So that's two victories. I say the Scottish win this one pretty handily. It's a pretty big win. Scottish casualties are light and a, a large number of of uh, English soldiers including uh you know knights and nobles are, are killed or captured. And going back to the Browns versus Patriots, this is like the this is a huge upset. Like no one probably expected the Scottish to win expect, except maybe Robert the Bruce. Yeah, maybe the Pats got a field goal in this in this analogy and that's it. There you go. I mean the the Patriots always score so you got to you got to give them one. Yeah. So is that the end of the war? Did Scots win? Is it all over? It's not even close to being over. Uh, the it, it, But it is the... It's not close to being over in that it lasts another 14 years. But it's the last major clash of the war. Uh, and it's kind of the point where Scotland is basically ready to... To take a, a victory, even in spirit, uh, the you know Robert the Bruce exchanges one of the captured uh, English commanders for his wife and daughter, so he's reunited with what remains of his family. And Bruce can you know continues to raid England relentlessly uh, after the Battle of Bannockburn. Peace has not been made. Uh, Edward the Second Eddie just booked it, but he didn't surrender, uh, and so. Bruce continues to, to cause trouble for him, even invading Ireland to open up a, a second front because the, uh, the Bruce family actually had a, a claim to the high kingship of Ireland. I know. I want to talk about the Irish invasion because I know, I, I know some of my listeners are into Irish history. So you mentioned that in addition to having a, obviously having a, a claim to the Scottish throne, he, how did he have a claim to the Irish throne? Do you know? I forget the exact names of the characters and the exact years it was. But if you go back to the, I believe it is the uh, King Brian Boru of Ireland, one of the f- most famous high kings of Ireland, you know, as a kingdom, Ireland was very rarely united. You know, It had always been kind of divided up into smaller kingdoms. Uh, but one of the famous high kings who had ruled at least most of it, probably all of it uh, was Brian Boru, And he had a, uh, I want to say, you know, it, it was a female descendant of Brian Boru was married to a, uh, an ancestor of Robert the Bruce. And in fact, the, uh, the entire Scottish nobility, or at least the, the Royal family. Uh, like I said, everything was kind of tied together. Everybody was pretty related in some way, back That's then, right. uh, I think just about everybody of European ancestry today is actually related to Charlemagne. So, uh, a little fun fact there. Uh, but there, there was a you know a recorded uh, tie to the uh, the High Kingdom of Ireland that go- went back very far. But Robert the Bruce had a, a centuries-old claim to it. How, um, is? I'm thinking Ireland's part of like under English control at this point. Most of it. Most of it, England had. it's just kind of before England really kind of fl- you know flexed its full muscle over Ireland. Uh, it wasn't fully under English control, and a lot of the um, the nobles of the English-controlled parts were actually Irish. So, how does the invasion go? Is it a success? Nope, No, nope. nope. It's it's not. It's uh, it's a. It starts out on a good foot. But they actually invaded Ireland during a a famine, and so they don't quite have these. The Scottish don't have the supplies to maintain their army in Ireland, and though they were probably a little more welcome than the English, especially if they brought some of their fellow Gaelic, Gaelic Gaelic-speaking Highlanders with them, uh, they did need to pillage and and um, and take a lot of supplies by force just to feed their army, and it you know. Edward, the Bruce, who was the, uh, Edward, Edward, the Bruce, Edward Bruce, uh, who had been commanding the siege of Sterling, uh, his, Robert's hotheaded brother actually dies in the, uh, the big battle that, uh, that England wins and closes down the, uh, the Scottish invasion of Ireland. So it didn't really amount to much. And Robert, the Bruce loses another brother in, in this, uh, in the conflict, uh, so it's it's not generally considered a, a you know a major front, but it's interesting. I think a lot of Irish, you said about the Gaelic connection, do a lot of Irish um peasants rise up and revolt with them, or is it pretty you get a pretty pretty blank reception? I believe there were some uh, who uh, who did join with them or could have even been conscripted. Uh, but it wasn't, uh, I don't, I think they had expected more and that was kind of a problem. But like I said, they, they landed in the middle of a famine. It was not a good time to take farmhands away from their fields. And sure about food, They probably would have helped. It's <laughs> not a lot of gr- grows in Scotland. Do you that, know? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, back in Scotland though, it looks like, uh, according to your show notes. Robert the Bruce finally takes Berwick castle in 1318. That's right. Uh, around the same time as the uh, uh, invasion of Ireland, uh, Robert the Bruce finally t- retakes Berwick Castle, uh, and that, you know, kind of stepping stone into northern what well, is now northern England, but had been kind of a contested area. Uh, Robert the Bruce kind of basically retakes all of Scotland. He kicks the uh, the English out, Stirling and Berwick, uh, along with Bothwell were the last English strongholds in Scotland. So it's back to square one. Uh, unless you count the raids and, and invasions that the Bruce is making, it's kind of looking like, you know, Robert the Bruce could take a little bit more than he wants uh, at this point. Uh, and the, um, uh, the invasion uh, of Northern England and the taking of uh, Berwick Castle is enough for uh, uh, Edward II to call a truce. Before you go into that, I have a, one quick question. Mm-hmm. After the Battle of Bannockburn, is there any more serious thoughts on on the part of Edward II to launch another invasion of Scotland, or is that is he basically done? I don't think he's got the the, the ability stones. to at this point. Like, the, like I said, the, that was the biggest invasion of Scotland ever, and most of it was killed. He doesn't really have... A leg to stand on to invade Scotland. Okay, yeah, I I, I know it was he lost it. You know, like I thought, like most of his army retreated. I don't know if it was completely wiped out like that. No, it was uh, it was very badly destroyed. Uh, some casualty uh, reports are eleven thousand, including five hundred knights. And is he also fighting France this time as well? The war with France does uh, resume not long after Ouch, this. Ouch, poor guy! Uh, you know, a couple of things happened before that, but uh, that that was kind of a uh, you know another headache for 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 Eddie, uh, and that was that was probably the last straw for him. Uh, but before that, you know, we've got some. Uh, oh, you know, I'm sorry, yeah, we more to on. talk about. I jumped ahead. So it looks like there's a truce. You want to talk about the truce? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, so after the, uh, the defeat uh, at Bannockburn and, and years of, uh, of raiding, uh, Robert de Bruce uh, actually makes an appeal to the Pope uh, to lift his excommunication and uh, force Edward II to make a formal peace. This is in uh, the spring of 1320. And on the 6th of April, 1320 is the, the date of the declaration of, and I'm probably going to butcher the pronunciation, but Arbroath or Arbroath. Uh, and it was essentially the, the Scottish Declaration of Independence. It talks about the, uh, the history of the unconquered Scottish people. Uh, it, it paints Edward I as a, as, as, a, uh, as a horrible raiding king who had violated peace. And it also speaks very highly of Robert the Bruce. And uh, it kind of, specially for the time, it includes a a note saying uh, that if Robert the Bruce were to uh, reverse course and kind of let the Scottish down, that he would be driven out and replaced with somebody who could do it. Uh, To quote the document, uh, not for glory nor riches nor honors that we fight, but for freedom alone, which no honest man gives up except with his life. And it it sort of worked. Uh but a year later, uh the war resumes and uh and Robert the Bruce is excommunicated once again. Um what the excommunicated is still from the um killing the one guy in a church. That's right. Um and it, the Pope, it was kind of warming up to England at this point, as we mentioned in the, the previous part. Um, so it, it had a, a short-term success, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't fully convince the Pope or Edward II to, uh, to give Scotland a break. Um, you said it tells the story of the unconquered Scottish people, as well as at saying how awful Edward Longshanks was and how awesome Robert the Bruce is. Do they take some liberties, or are they merely telling the truth? well they, they speak pretty broadly i've uh i've only read it once or twice uh or you know it, it's actually plastered on i shouldn't say plastered the, the text is painted on the wall of the uh uh king of scots section of the uh the edinburgh uh scottish history museum highly recommend visiting um but it's um you know it it it's not wrong you know edward the first of england had been kind of a, a dick to the Scottish, and Robert the Bruce had been pretty awesome in the at least the later parts of the, the civil war. And he did have you know a decent character, except for killing the uh, you know the Red Coleman, uh in a church, uh, and not always being on the uh, the Scottish side during the war. But you know he's like Tom Brady. You know he makes he fibs a little bit here and there. he's mainly pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> still um, the goat. He's still goat. There you still the goat. Watch out for Carson Wentz though. Yeah, that's right. It almost seems like the not to go on a tantrum about American history, um, but it almost seems like the the way it's written is very similar to the Declaration of Independence. And I almost wanna say I I read a book in grad school about how the Declaration of Independence was written, and I believe this declaration Thomas Jefferson got some of his influence from that. Absolutely. Like I said, you know, the um that clause in the Declaration of Arbroath that says that if you know that Bruce would be replaced if he if he reversed course, uh, it's not hinting of a uh you know a democracy by any stretch of the imagination, but it is, you know, showing that they were intent on the the ruler having some merit and some actual competence, not necessarily just being you know, the the guy with the claim. What a concept in today's world, right? Yeah. What a concept. I know, right? We're not going to get into that. I'm editing that part out. Um, <laughs> so let's, let's talk about poor Edward II. So Edward II, he screws the pooch with the Battle of Bannockburn and does, do things get any better for him where is, is his brain still marred with misfortune? It's all downhill for Eddie, I'm afraid. That's one uh, slope, slope, slope too. Oh yeah. It's, uh, it's a pretty fast fall. Um, so France, which at this point had been neutral, uh, resumes the war with England. Uh, and if Facing Robert the Bruce was bad. Having to fight a two-front war with the biggest, one of the biggest powers on the continent, if it wasn't the biggest power on the continent, always in a rivalry with the Holy Roman Empire, but um, having a two-front war with Robert the Bruce and the King of France is not an exciting prospect for Eddie. Um, to make matters even worse, uh, his own wife, Isabella, uh, who is portrayed way too old in the movie Braveheart, uh, but she's an adult at this point. Uh, betrays him with her lover Roger Mortimer, and uh, she invades from France. She's actually, uh, you know, she's French and she's of the French royal family uh, with an army. They land in London, and they de- and the whole city just declares for her when they land there. They don't they 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 don't surrender. They they openly just side with her uh and after years of of civil war he edward is uh or eddie is finally captured uh in november 1326 and uh and he's officially deposed by isabella and he's replaced with their teenage son also edward edward the third we gotta give him a nickname what should we call little edward eddie III? little eddie ed, L- ed and eddie <laughs> ed, ed and eddie <laughs> This is this is Edward II is Eddie. This can be double D. Double D. <laughs> so, yeah. Ed, there's two D's in Edward. He's double D. Double D uh is now King Edward the Third. Uh and he you know, all while this is happening, Robert the Bruce's guerrilla forces are still just burning and pillaging and destroying northern England. Uh, and finally, in the in March of thirteen twenty-eight, two years, oh, uh, not quite two years—but uh, you know, another year and a half of fighting. Uh, Double D recognizes Scottish independence from England, and it is officially ratified uh, in May in the Treaty of Edinburgh Northampton. I thought this was—I this is not your average affair. This is like I. When when um, Edward II's wife went off with her lover, it really bit him in the butt. Like this is this is one hell of an affair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This this is an awesome office gossip. This is a a changing of power. <laughs> not not like they just like stole the car and got the house. They actually assembled an army, invaded your kingdom, and took you off the throne. Yeah, it was a. Uh, a forced, uh, a forced abdication, abdication. And uh, Edward II, Eddie, uh, is, is, it's officially that he, he I believe he died of illness officially, but it is incredibly likely that he was poisoned uh, and murdered uh, by Isabella's supporters. And uh, he kind of dies with his horrible reputation and, uh, you know, his... Basically, only in recent years were, were historians trying to shed some positive light on him. He's not a popular king. So, yeah, I know all the guy listeners out there, if you thought you had a bad breakup or a bad girlfriend, this guy had it worse than you. There's a... Uh, there's, <laughs> there's you a can't myth. make this stuff up. Like, you, I don't think... Even Game of Thrones, they, I, don't, I never saw you don't see a character fall from grace like this like this poor guy just had like the worst life of any king or queen ever like this is just horrible this one theory that his his murder was not was actually not poison but that a uh, uh a red hot iron was shoved up his butt Ouch. and it killed him but I'm pretty sure officially he died of illness. Well, I feel, about, I feel better about myself. I hope you do too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think so far my life's going better than this guy. So let's, t- let's do an epilogue. I have a couple questions I want to ask you to kind of wrap this whole up. Um, excuse me, wrap this whole thing up. Yeah. What happens to Robert the Bruce? What's, what happens to him after the war finally ends? Well, the war ends in March of 1328 and sadly, Robert the Bruce only gets to live in an independent Scotland uh, or newly independent Scotland for a little over a year. He, he dies of, uh, of illness uh, at the age of 55 and on the 13th of June, uh, 12, uh, 1329. Uh, so it, it's, he it was coming up on the anniversary. She has a couple of weeks away from the anniversary of Bannerburn. Um, but he uh, he was succeeded by his son David, who, as kind of the uh, as, as a form of, of securing peace with England, he was actually married to Edward II's sister. I'm oh, sorry, Edward III's sister, uh, double D's sister. Uh, she was seven and he was four, so they really rushed this uh, this wedding to secure uh, to secure the peace. It's like uh, the flower girl marrying the uh, ring bearer. Yeah. And the uh, it 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 was kind of a stressful time for Robert the Bruce to to secure this piece. I believe he uh, had a, a he he didn't have you know a, a male heir you know for very long. Like I said, that's a stupid way to put it, but um, David was only four, so Robert Bruce was fifty one when his heir was born, uh, and that's uh, you know. You need when we take a look at all the succession crises that happened in Scotland, you know, prior that that had caused this whole war of a king dying without an heir. You know, it was um, uh, it was probably a very stressful last you know year of of his life to make sure that his his child's son was old enough, at least for for um, Robert the Bruce to to die in a, in peace. So I have to ask the questions, uh, and I'm sure because I'm sure a lot of our audience is probably thinking the same thing if you look at a map scotland is not an independent country so it looks mm-hmm. like you according to the story the scotland just won its independence what happens between 1328 and 2020 to make it part of the united kingdom well the uh it was not conquered scotland was not conquered by england Uh, as Wales had been, and up until uh, Irish independence, uh, Ireland had been. uh, The descendants of Robert the Bruce were the Stuart family. Uh, I believe it was Bruce's uh, either sister or daughter. One of his female relatives uh, married uh, uh, one of the Stuarts back during the the lifetime of Robert the Bruce. Uh, And though the Bruce line ended after David the Se- uh, or, yeah, David the second um, Bruce's son, uh, the Stuart line took the throne of Scotland as the closest uh, relatives of of Robert the Bruce. And centuries later, y'all know, Elizabeth I of England, you know, the Virgin Queen, uh, died without an heir. And so she left the throne of England to James Stuart. Uh, who would uh, become James I of England, who was also king of Scotland, uh, being you know, descended from Robert the Bruce. So although it didn't formally unite the two countries, um, it was the kind of the first step in the two countries being you know, united in some way. You know, two two kingdoms with the same king hadn't been the first time it had happened in history, but it was the first time it happened between England and Scotland. Years later, uh, you know, the, the Stuart line doesn't, you know, rule, uh, doesn't rule uh, England and Scotland forever. Uh, in fact, briefly, uh, the two kingdoms were a, a joint republic under Oliver Cromwell. Uh, but... The uh, after the the um, uh, the disastrous Scottish colonization of Panama, called the Darien Scheme, which left the Scottish Treasury basically empty, uh, the um, the Queen of England, who uh, was actually a Stuart, Anne Stuart, uh, organized the um, uh, the the Kingdom of Great Britain, uniting the two countries. Uh, they had basically been tied together economically and politically for a very long time, uh, but this formally united them under a uh, a single banner. If you take the, uh, the the flag of England, which is Saint George's cross, and, and slap it on top of uh, the flag of Scotland, which is Saint Andrew's cross, you get what kind of looks like the modern British flag minus uh, minus one of the crosses, which is the cross of Saint Patrick. Uh, so that's a very long winded way to say that after uh, kind of a, centuries of, of political union, they finally united under the same, you know, agreed to unite as a, as a single entity, which was the Kingdom of Great Britain in 1707. And Ireland joined in 1801 uh, to form the United Kingdom, which is where they get the, uh, one of the oldest flags in, uh, in history. So the United Kingdom is England, Scotland, Ireland, and Wales. So those like, is that why it's called the United Kingdom? Oh, oh. oh you got to watch out. It's not Ireland. Uh, anyway. Ireland is, uh, you know, it, it's officially Northern Ireland. It's not Ireland. Uh, but you are correct. Uh, the United Kingdom is, uh, is the full name is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Great Britain being the, the big island, which, is, uh, which com- is composed of England, Scotland, and Wales. And then there's Northern Ireland, which elected... or uh, voted to remain part of the united kingdom after uh, the republic of ireland became independent now here's my next question um i think we've alluded to in the past you've been to scotland twice mm-hmm. and you've enjoyed it twice mm-hmm. so can you give me an idea of like what's the legacy of the scottish war of independence over there it's more than just braveheart i take it there's a, a couple of uh of Different side legacies to uh, to the Wars of Scottish Independence. Uh, One is a uh, is Braveheart. (laughs) You know, you get the uh, you know the the almost universal uh, recognition of of this kind of you know scrappy smaller country sticking it to uh, to one of the big powers of the time, uh, and it being immortalized in, in film and uh even in scotland a lot of you know people you know love braveheart and and take it as kind of uh a, don't a, 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 I don't want to call it like a you know a, a, a an origin story uh but you know a, a huge historical moment that you know is kind of taken at face value and uh and made a kind of a, a point of patriotism and you know even today there's you know, still wide support for for Scottish independence um and then the 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 other legacy is kind of the more historical one that we talked about today which isn't as romantic uh you know Robert the Bruce is kind of you know a, a favorite son of Scotland but as we talked about he you know he was a flawed character he he wasn't always you know fighting on the same side as as William Wallace you know, because he was an enemy of John Balliol. Uh but you know ends justify the means. He uh he was the guy who, who finally did it. And it it wasn't a, an everlasting peace. You know, war with England, you know, continued just constantly after even after uh independence was won. Uh double D, you know Shortly after the death of Robert the Bruce, you know, came back and invaded Scotland. And uh, I'm pretty sure David had a, a pretty hard time trying to maintain uh, you know, the Bruce's legacy. Is you mentioned that Scottish independence still a topic for today? Has that been more prevalent since the um, Brexit decision? I won't go too deep into it uh, in case we we actually kickstart the uh, the next war of Scottish independence. Uh, but yeah, you know, th- that you you got it right. The uh, you know Scotland voted overwhelmingly to remain in the uh, the EU along with Northern Ireland, uh, and uh, it is a point of uh, contention for for them, and, and uh, it's. If there is a deciding factor on another referendum, that'll probably be it. But I won't go too deep into it to uh, to save uh, a headache for for the your British viewers or listeners. There you go. Well, I'm sure there it's this is a uh, top rated podcast in the UK. Last I checked, I'm pretty sure uh, you had a, a, a at least a, a couple of uh, listeners across the pond. I did. I didn't know I have any on this side of the pond. No, check your uh, check oh. your anchor. Oh, I haven't done that in a while. I'm, I'm excited now. Um, Go for it, man. So, one last question: ha, When you went to Scotland, did you are any of these castles or battlefields? Any of those things kind of preserved? Because I was a museum it, person, that's something that interests me a lot. No, they certainly are. Uh, you know, Stirling Castle is a sight to behold. Uh, it's when you. If you take a trip into into Sterling, and you you know it it you can't even you can't miss it the the castle's up on a cliff, and you can just imagine yourself, especially if you get up close to the you know, at the at the base of the castle, base of the cliff, and you look up you 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 can't help but wonder if anybody could take this castle. It's it's in a perfect strategic location. Edinburgh Castle, which had been uh, taken by Robert the Bruce is, uh, as I said in in, uh, the previous part, uh, was rebuilt after Robert the Bruce, uh, destroyed it. Uh, but the oldest, uh, the oldest building in there, St. Margaret's Chapel, Robert the Bruce would never tear down a church, especially after he was excommunicated. (laughs) Um, St. Margaret's Chapel is still there. Uh, the battlefields, uh, are, are certainly, you know, filled with, um, uh, statues and memorials. Uh, the Sterling Bridge no longer stands. Uh, we have, um, you yeah, know, the, the, they did build a bridge across the, the river and the, the base of the uh, the historic medieval bridge uh, is still visible underwater if you go scuba diving.
1: There you
0: go. Uh, and uh, yeah, Berwick, uh, you know, there's still a, uh, a bit of the castle left over in Berwick. Uh, but much of Scotland's castles have been, uh, you know, somewhat preserved. Uh, and certainly, quite a few were in ruins. But uh, you yeah, know, you can still see a lot of the uh, the uh, the history uh, as it as it was. Well, Bob, I re- definitely appreciate you coming on. Um, I think the audience like this. Uh, I definitely would like to have you on for another episode or another series in the future, if that's okay with you. I know you're very busy. I uh, I'd be honored. Yeah, there's uh there's there's plenty to talk about. I think my next episode or my next history episode is going to be one about the national parks, and I'll have my friend Andrew Shirley on for that. But yeah, I'll, I'll about, you, you, I think that'll be a good one. I want to talk about kind of um Teddy Roosevelt uh Roosevelt and Roosevelt. So we got Teddy Roosevelt and his um Conservation movements, FDR and the New Deal and the Public Works Progress. And just kind of see how Americans kind of use and like how we like why these parks are so important to us and kind of like how this connection to nostalgic connection in nature kind of is a big American ideal and why that's a good thing and a bad thing. So I think it'll be a good podcast. Yeah. I feel like uh, a lot of, and It's pretty easy to take our national parks for granted because they're they're there's such special parts of our country, but when you take a look at you know the massive industrial industrialization of the time uh, you know, and what t r did to stop it, yeah, you can really put a perspective on what could have been and I think like um I know the term um cancel culture and all of that with history is a hotly debated topic and i'm not someone who wants to talk a lot about politics on this podcast but Mm -hmm. i think it's important to kind of look back at some of those those movements and through a more critical lens yeah well if you ever need somebody to come on and talk about medieval british politics i'm man i was gonna say i think another scottish one i want to talk about is the jacobite rebellion oh yeah that's That's, that's, uh, that's that's politics that's politics, and that is much like, uh, much like Braveheart. Though much, you know, probably not nearly as widely known as the Jacobite Rebellion, it's incredibly romanticized. And uh, a, a different lens can definitely be put onto that to put it into a much more uh, as it was perspective. And, and another podcast I want to do is speaking of politics. Is look at twenty twenty compared to seventeen seventy five. I think yeah? I, I might get like an American history person to help me out with that. Um, but I think especially if you look at Boston, because we all love the city of Boston with the Red Sox and the Patriots, how can you not love those guys? I mean, I, that that's that's my new home. That's right. I, I said the that kind of sarcastically, though I, I don't like Boston sports very much. But I want to talk that's... about Boston 1775 um, and compare that to 2020. Absolutely. There's <laughs> uh, two very turbulent times in American history. Well, any last thoughts before we go? Well, thank you very much for having me. You know, I, I uh, recommend to anybody listening to, um, uh, take a, if, if you live in the UK or if you feel like visiting the UK, uh, you, know, you can have an amazing time if you go to the, uh, the, the country to the North, um, I, uh, my main source for, uh, for much of my research on this was, uh, actually a book by Magnus I believe It's called, uh, you know, it's just called Scotland. Um, and, um, you know, excellent book, very informative. Um, you know, if you want to, uh, kind of live as close, uh, as you could to, uh, what really happened, you know, We talked about the film Outlaw King If you want to witness it on the screen Braveheart, still love it As much as we debunked it Still worth watching Uh, And uh, yeah, again Thank you very much for having me I had a great time recording this with you Definitely, right. He knows his stuff And sure enough It's shooting the bull with Tom Snow